it's really hard to fire people, especially the friends. So you're thinking you are doing yourself a favor by inviting friends. You're actually not. You're creating problems down the road. How do you get good objective advice for your business? You may want to turn to friends and family, but there is a better way to get smart guidance without all the potential baggage. You need that independence because sometimes you cannot test your ideas in the same way with your management group, for example, because obviously they are dependent and that will color the discussion. You want a strong, independent people. Welcome to the second season of Grit and Growth from Stanford Seed, the show where Africa and South Asia's intrepid entrepreneurs share their trials and triumphs with insights from Stanford faculty on how to tackle challenges and grow your business. Imagine you've got a problem that you don't know how to solve. It's not an impossible problem. Other companies seem to have figured it out. But you're not sure how it applies to the specifics of your business, in your industry, and at your particular stage of growth. So what are your options? You could ignore the problem and just hope it goes away. You could wing it or make an educated guess. You could drop everything and learn all there is to know about the subject. Or you could just ask someone who knows, knows the subject, and knows the industry. Someone who may have piloted a business through a very similar problem. Doesn't that sound better? Well, congratulations, you just got yourself an advisor. Advisory boards can be an amazing resource, your secret weapon to access expertise on critical topics. But I've seen so many businesses forego advisory boards because they're not sure about the value or the logistics or the amount of effort it's gonna take. Or maybe subconsciously, they fear some loss of control. So we're here to set the record straight on what advisory boards are, what they should and shouldn't be used for, and how to construct a great one of your own, one that will pay dividends as your company grows and becomes more complex. But we're not the only advisory board evangelists. Meet Ashish Agarwal. So I'm Ashish. I'm the founder and chairman of the Energy Group. And the group is comprised of different companies, largely in the data design and the content ecosystems. Ashish's companies have expanded from Chennai, India, to international markets across the globe. And they knit together complex systems connecting content, data, production, and design. Think about a book. So right from the manuscript to the final print and digital file, we work with publishers, enabling them through the entire cycle. Editorial, layout, indexing, proofing, all of that. And the design side, we work extensively on creative production services. So essentially, ad agencies, OTT platforms, helping them with video post-production, uh, working with large brands on their packaging pre-media side. So all of those production-related activities, we help them with. So as a group, we are about uh, 1,500 people across the US, UK, and in India, across multiple operational centers. We've completely been self-funded. The companies have reached a point where we could speak to external investors, but currently all, all self-funded. What drove you to decide you wanted to be an entrepreneur and start your own business? Well, I would say joblessness, uh, meaning <laughs> I finished my master's in the US, I came back to India, worked for my father for a couple of years, and. He was having a manufacturing setup, something that really wasn't appealing to me. So I remember I did stock trading for maybe six months. That didn't go well. And so I was kind of really frustrated. And then 
I remember seeing an article in a magazine at that time in India called Business World, and it uh, the article headline was the rise of teleworking, and teleworking basically meant through telecommunication lines, a lot of work is being done offshore, especially India. Ashish had stumbled onto outsourcing, and he started a digital publishing enterprise to exploit a nascent but rapidly growing market. In the spirit of the topic, it's only right that we bring in an advisor to advise us on advisory boards. Uh, my name is Alexei Volinets. I lead the SME practice area in the environmental, social, and governance knowledge and learning team of the International Finance Corporation. Alexei is an expert in corporate governance and has been teaching companies about it for years. In the simplest possible terms, we provide various forms of financing to private sector and also various kinds of advice, including, for example, on uh, corporate governance, environmental and social issues. So it's a very long introduction, but the short of it is that we are developing various knowledge products and learning programs and then deliver it to IFC clients and partner institutions worldwide. Can you give me a, just a working definition of corporate governance? It's used, that term is used so broadly. How does the IFC define it? Well, there are multiple definitions. There are two that I personally like the most. One is the simplest. It's uh, corporate governance is about how companies are directed and controlled. And I like it because it focuses on functions not on specific uh, institutions, like a lot of definitions include, for example, board of directors as a key player in it. Whereas in the context of small and medium enterprises, that is not often a relevant institution, a board of directors, or at least not up to a point in, in their growth. So definition that focuses on functions, I think, is much more important. It makes it easier to communicate with entrepreneurs. And the second definition we got, governance is when the company can run itself. I really like that. For Again, in context of SMEs, that just means that you're creating certain structured policies and practices that, you know, you can take vacation for three weeks and not, to be, not be afraid that your business will fall apart while you're away. Companies with better governance show better long-term performance. Starting with three to five years, you see better performance. It has been done in multiple markets, including emerging markets. That is the case, especially in crisis. So they would look at, for example, corporate governance rankings in Brazil before crisis. And then after you know, three, four years after crisis, and they see those companies that had higher rankings actually did much better in crisis than those that did not. Alexei would be the first to tell you that corporate governance can look very different for different companies but the most common manifestation of corporate governance is a board. There are two main types of boards, fiduciary and advisory. Understanding the difference is key to finding the utility of each. Well, the key difference is the, the fiduciary board actually has uh, liabilities. It has responsibilities for shareholders, for the company. And actually, if you fail at those responsibilities, you can and increasingly will be taken to court, right? Advisory board is what you want it to be. It's that simple. The first time I really explored the idea of an advisory board was when uh, one of my cohort members, uh, Karthik, and a big shout out to him, we were talking and uh, just like you asked some questions, he was talking about who do you answer to? How do you hold yourself accountable? And frankly, I didn't really have an answer where he said, Look, I've used something called an advisory board. 
And he, he beautifully explained how the advisory board helped him. You know, he, he gave some great stories, anecdotes. And so that was the first time when I, I really kind of started exploring what an advisory board can do. The first question you need to ask when considering an advisory board is a simple one. Why do you need that board? For example, you might want to have just a sounding board, right, to test new ideas. But you fully understand why you need it long term. And then you actually think why you need it in the short term. Because when you bring people in, they need to understand what they are there for. So, for example, if your company is thinking about expansion into new markets, that has to be explicit to the people you are bringing in. So they're working on that problem. And then once you know what, what the purpose of the board is, long term and short term, then you can start thinking of the skills, these skill gaps that inside your company. That's a very easy way for us, we find, to explain to entrepreneurs why they need advisory board. All of them can think of some skills that are currently missing. So that idea is to start with that skills matrix, specifically identify what the company is needed. It sounds like you actually need to have a pretty good sense of what your strategy is before you should start thinking about populating an advisory board. It's not just, here's a, I'm going to get a bunch of smart people and they're going to help me think through my strategy. It's, this is my strategy, these are my gaps. And this is where I might need a subject matter expert. This is where I might need some mentoring, uh, specific types of experience. So unless you have a map, you're not going to get the right people. Exactly. Ashish also suggests assessing your blind spots and simply being honest about the time you have to dedicate to your board. I would say the first is to identify the gaps. And second is, do you need that help on a consistent basis or intermittent basis? Because again, you have to decide how much investments you're going to make in it. And uh, based on that, I would say certain do's that I try to practice would be know your ask. What specifically can they help you with? This point is key. Strategy is a guide to finding the right people. I asked Ashish what he hoped to accomplish with his board. For us, um, I knew the starting point. I don't know the ending point. We have also identified certain other areas where we believe we need to really make progress. So an example of that is uh, strategic HR. A lot of the HR, as you know, is very transactional. And so we, we kind of said, you know what, with like we were discussing, with so many different types of services, there are many different types of skill sets that we have, you know, different types of people. For example, in the design side, the mindset of people, members are very different than, let's say, data processing. The skill sets, the experience, the education, a lot of that is very different. So, you know, we said strategic HR is a must where HR is really not human resources, it's human relationships. So one of the first people we wanted to bring on to the advisory board was someone who comes with that background of having had multiple years of HR experience, not just transactional, but you know, strategic as well. Ashish was also looking for board members with expertise in marketing, machine learning, and product integration. But before we get into the weeds of how to build an advisory board, Let's zoom out and discuss why. What are they useful for? What can they do? What can't they do? Well, as we've mentioned, boards are great for filling knowledge gaps in your business. 
But there's a whole host of other benefits that you can get from having a group of seasoned professionals in your corner. I think it's a must in terms of the ability of a company to be held accountable. Now, in our case, as I shared, since we were largely self-funded, we didn't have kind of an oversight committee. So there wasn't anyone saying, hey, you embarked on this plan, nothing happened. You embarked on this strategic initiative, we haven't heard anything from you. So yeah, I absolutely think, and the larger the company becomes, I believe very strongly that there needs to be some form of uh, check in terms of the growth path, obviously the financial management, and so on. Because I realize, you know, with all these companies, what often happens is you do a lot of planning and then you may not be really very hands-on with the execution. And then because you're running around with different initiatives, it's very easy to drop the ball. So, you know, we kind of, uh, as a team, identify that, you know what, we must have an advisory. So that's, that's kind of how it really started. Advisors can also help you navigate those tricky situations that might be outside of your personal experience as an entrepreneur. In uh, August 2020, we were acquiring a company in New York in the creative production business. And I remember distinctly, you know, I had a good number of questions with regards to the integration, with regards to the existing customers of this company that we were acquiring, you know, how would we, or how should we, or how should I, in this case, approach the existing customers so that they don't feel that, okay, a big company has come, acquired, there's gonna be integration. I wanna highlight Ashish's point here. He built an offshore B2B company, largely invisible to the final customers of his products, and then acquired an onshore company working directly with those customers. That is a very different business. He needed a savvy advisor to help him succeed. And, you know, he gave me such a wonderful piece of advice. He said, look, write to every customer and you ask them specifically, as a result of this acquisition, what are your concerns? You know, honestly, I hadn't thought about asking that question very specifically. And I, I really talked to him about it. I said, look, this, if they don't respond, they feel threatened and so on and so forth. He said, no, I think you should definitely do that because it shows willingness, it shows openness on your part. I did. So we wrote to about 21 or 22 of these uh, different customers. And it was very interesting. 21 of them responded out of the 22. Almost all of them said, we love working with this company. We love the relationships and we don't want a big company coming and suddenly changing the management, changing how we do things, etc. And that feedback, I mean, I kid you not, it was amazing because we said, you know what? We are not going to do anything different other than try to obviously bring in certain efficiencies, etc. But from a customer interface perspective, we kept all of the relationships as is. Right. So if you hadn't written that letter, you might have wanted, walked in there and just tripped over yourself and broken a lot of relationships with these customers. I think so. Because, again, you know, we, we think very production-oriented processes and ideas, right? Because a lot of the work that we do is built on efficiencies of processes. 
this is an onshore company working directly with very large brands. And obviously we needed to kind of learn, uh, you know, how to kind of direct the ship, so to speak. Alexi sees advisory boards as a mechanism to keep entrepreneurs from just getting carried away. There is quite a bit of literature that says that humans have optimism bias, right? Most people are over-optimistic. They overestimate good outcomes and the over chances of the good outcomes, and they overestimate the impact of those good outcomes. There is also literature that says that entrepreneurs are much more subject to that bias. So there is a lot of risks, and it's really good for society that those people are overestimating their chances of success. We are all beneficiaries of, you know, their sweat and blood and troubles and all of it. But as your business starts to grow, it's very important to not to become overconfident. If you are successful, it's just basic human psychology. We don't assign it to chance. We assign it to our great skills and foresight and all of that. So as you are growing and when you are on the top of the world, that's an important to have that check. So external advisors, especially very independent voices, will ask you the right questions, will challenge your assumptions. It's really, really useful to keep you, keep your touch with reality. I think it's also worth noting what advisory boards can't do something that got me pretty fired up while I was talking to Ashish. I've talked to a lot of business leaders for this podcast, and some of them talk about advisory board as someone who helps you actually make a strategy, that somehow they're going to come in and save your bacon, which is a very American slang. But, you know, they're going to come and, and help you do your strategy. And in my professional career, I've worked for organizations that hire outside facilitators to help the leadership team make a strategy. And it always sucked. I mean, to be totally honest with you, if the leadership can't lead on strategy formulation, no one else can do it for you. Now, when we left off, Ashish had found some areas where he felt he could use more guidance. But that raises another question. Once you identify a gap, how do you find the right advisor to fill it? Now, I'm going back to playing the role of the entrepreneur. My business has grown to the point where I'm ready. I need more advice. And I've identified the key attributes I'm looking for. How do I go about finding these people? That's a very hard question. We actually asked it all the time. And unfortunately, it's really country by country because it depends on what the environment is. In some countries, for example, increasingly in emerging markets, we will have institutes of directors that often they would have databases of directors. So you can actually tap into ready ones. And some of them will be even quite sophisticated where you can have even say, I want, I need more women on my board, for example. But in other countries, you don't have that. So it's, it's just your networks. Look at the business people you trust, see if they fit the criteria. Simple as that. So I'm curious. So you've got strategic HR, technology, visioning, product integration, and marketing. And one of these people had been road tested as a consultant. How did you find the other three? So with the leadership team, when we identified these uh, areas where we need board members, the HR individual was actually recommended by our COO. He had worked with him. So we met a couple of times. We kind of discussed the scope of work. And uh, yeah, he was, he was very willing as well. The other two actually was thanks to LinkedIn. 
So I actually identified from different profiles, you know, which of the profiles might be closest to our needs. So you you search for specific individuals by based on their business profile. I did absolutely. It wasn't sort of like a call for proposals. We're looking for advisory board members. Not at all. Not at all. I was very clear in my mind. At least I had a pretty good idea as to what kind of profile we are looking for. And then I just reached out to them, explaining what we are uh, looking for, who we are, and what the goals are. According to Alexi, it can be just as helpful to know what to avoid. It's important to think not only in positive terms, but in negative terms, whom you don't want to see at the board. You don't want to see any people with conflict of interest. It's really hard to fire people, especially the friends. So you're thinking you are doing yourself a favor by inviting friends. You're actually not. You're creating problems down the road. So no suppliers, no contractors, nobody who cannot provide independent advice. You need that independence because sometimes you you cannot test your ideas in the same way with your management group, for example, because obviously they are dependent and that will color the discussion. You want a strong, independent people. The most important characteristics is that person is actually, there is emotional independence. They're not dependent on your salary. They are not dependent on you psychologically, don't have connections with you in the same way as they would want to tell you something. Even if you pay them, you normally don't pay them what they can get otherwise spending the same amount of time. So for them, it's often these people can be altruistic. They really want to see different businesses succeed. And they also want intellectual challenge. That's an interesting thing to do. And maybe that's actually another key criteria for selecting advisory board members is that they need to be passionate about what you're trying to do. That's an interesting criteria because it's hard to fake passion like that. It's important that you also think of kind of this reciprocity in that way that you make their life interesting in a good way. And just like any team, you want it to be more than the sum of its parts. For the board member, I think the important to see not only at individual skill set, but also how they fit together. It's always good to have at least one person who is comfortable challenging the consensus, right? Who is comfortable being contrarian and so forth. But you don't want to have all the all the you know three, five people contrarians because it's not going to be very productive. Yeah. It's useful then if you have a strong contrarian to have somebody who is more capable to bring people together and so forth. So I'm curious, when you first reach out to, you know, the CTO of a Fortune 50 company, what's your pitch? Honestly, it was a very short message that, uh, you know, we are looking to transform. And as a part of the imperatives that we have, let's say strategic HR, or in this case, uh, cognitive science and analytics is top of mind. So I'd love to have a chat and... uh, if you are willing to be a member on the advisory board, you know, welcome a conversation. He replied, I think within 24 hours, that look, happy to talk to you. I'm curious, what did they ask you? You know, when you approached these four about being on your board, what did they ask you? In the kind of introduction, we specifically mentioned that we've created a transformation plan and, uh, Extremely critical to the execution of the plan are these pillars where an advisory board is imperative. So the ask was not very specific, but nevertheless, we were relatively clear 
about the direction. So I think this is a super important point that because you had a strategy, a growth strategy, and you had specific things you wanted to achieve over the next however many years, that was actually the hook, right? The people could look at you and say, this person means business. They have a plan. They are trying to get somewhere. They have a pretty clear strategy, and I can see where I fit in that strategy. Absolutely. The fact that you had a strategy for growth, I think, was seems to be what made even total strangers take you seriously. Couldn't agree more. Absolutely. In fact, in each of the first meetings, we showcased the T-plan in terms of where we started, what we did, and where we are going. So that, that was definitely something uh, we shared, we talked about. Yeah. At the risk of sounding redundant, I want to point out the importance of an existing strategy. The T-plan that Ashish mentioned is their multi-year strategy to transform their business. It's key to identifying the right people, and perhaps more importantly, convincing them to spend their valuable time on your business. Once you have your all-star team of advisors, you have to figure out how will your board operate? What should advisory board members expect of you and vice versa? Do you just sit in a room and chat? How often do you meet? How deep in the weeds should they go? The good news is you actually have a lot of options. As Alexi mentioned earlier, one of the major attractions of an advisory board is its flexibility. Advisory board is what you want it to be. It's that simple. Ashish has gone through several iterations to find the structure that works best for him. So tell me, let's talk a little bit about how this advisory board functions. I think most listeners will imagine that they get together on some periodic schedule, sit around a conference table with a set agenda, and have a structured conversation. Is that what yours, how yours works? I would classify it as version one and version two. So version one was exactly what you said. It was a very generalized approach. So for example, we would sit in the beginning of the financial year, for us it's first of April, and I would take them through the broad map of you know, what these strategic initiatives are, what top line are we looking at, what's the margin, et cetera. And then they would, they would obviously challenge, question certain things that um, certain numbers seem very ambitious or the time for the strategic initiative seems to be very short. Uh, they would challenge you on the current people and if they are already stretched with the various you know, projects that they are running. And then I would give them an update every quarter. So we did that for a year. The challenge I found with that approach was it became a very general conversation. Yeah, it almost sounds like the agenda of a fiduciary board. Exactly. So it became very general and they came up with some amazing points. So we were jotting all of those points. And then after we would finish the meeting, you know, the CEO and I would kind of uh, discuss and we would find there is no way we can implement so many points. So for example, you know, even if you're in marketing, because of your experience, you can add massive value, let's say, in an HR challenge. And you want to take that on board, but you, you just can't take so many things on board. It's doomed to fail. This year, I actually reached out and I said, look, can we change the format? And, you know, this is my version two, which became very specific. So, for example, at the beginning of the financial year, we sit down and I take them through the plan. 
And then over the course of the year, I basically fixed up an hour or half an hour every month with each of them. Separately? Absolutely. And the idea was I would make a note of all the various points where I need some guidance, some tips, or some um, suggestions. And we would cover that in that call. And frankly, I find this to be a lot more compelling because one, I'm able to actually report back on what I did specifically on the inputs that they gave. It's also important to consider what financial obligations you have to an advisory board. So are your advisory board members, do they get compensation? Yeah, there is a fixed fee every quarter. Okay, some presumably modest compared to their other revenue streams, right? So they're not really doing it for the money. They're doing it because they believe in the business. By and large, it's a good idea to pay for your board. And it's really hard to say how much because if you even look at the board, uh, at corporate governance board, there is a huge difference between countries how much um, board members are getting paid. There are even huge differences within the same countries and different industries. But there is one rule of thumb that I find really overall good, that you should value time of your board member as much as you value your top executives. I'm talking about specific time. So if you know your board member will probably work five days a year, advisory board member, that you pay him for what you would have paid for your top executive for a week, something like that. And a general idea, it's good to schedule payment in a way that you pay per meeting. So it incentivizes them to attend those. But you also pay a retainer, essentially, so you can call people, your executives can call them for advice and so forth. If you can pay, if you can afford it, do it. Then there's the question of how much reach advisors have into your business. To what extent does the advisory board have access to your senior managers and vice versa? I would say as of now, the interactions have been limited to me and my COO. And the reason for that is because these initiatives or these challenges are very specific from my perspective, it's just been us who have been interacting with the board. I, I believe they know a lot of the senior leadership team or some of them. So you might call in for a specific conversation for, with a specific advisory board member, you might call in the relevant managers. Though it varies from company to company and from problem to problem, in general, your advisors need to understand the business but not try to run it. That means having some access to your executives, but in prescribed ways. Alexi has an interesting rule of thumb here. The advice that we usually give that kind of helps to, it sounds very general, but actually people intuitively understand what we are talking about, is should the board of directors have their nose in operations? And then we say, no, here is the way you understand the role of the board. Nose in, but hands out. You need to really understand what's happening but you cannot run it. You can tell what needs to be fixed. You can provide the direction to the management and so forth, but your hands are out and people cannot get it. Okay, nose in, hands out. They get the idea. It's normally good practice for board members and advisory board members to have access to executives for needed information. The issue here is that that process has to be clear and transparent because it often creates conflict. It's one of the typical conflicts of the board, reasons for conflicts on the both types of boards 
is where board members would go and start soliciting information from the company, from different executives. And then the owners or other board members is like, what are you doing? Why are you doing it? What are you trying to accomplish? Make sure you actually, whatever you decide, that it's fully transparent how the process works, who you go through to get access for what information, how you disclose your purpose, and so forth. Just that transparency will help to avoid a lot of problems. Just like any part of a business, there's a chance that a fiduciary board can go wrong if it's not done in the right way or for the right reasons. I guess the the most common is that it just becomes a a tick-the-box exercise and it's not really doing anything and everybody ends up being dissatisfied. But I'm just curious, like, what are the common mistakes? What are the things? How does this all go wrong? I think what you describe is one of the typical problems. And what happens when people pushed to create a board, either by law or by requirements of uh, some investors or something, then they go ahead and they think, okay, at least I will invite people I trust. So they go with a trust issue and they create a board that is essentially fully controlled by the, by the shareholder. Most people there will be dependent. And then what they discover is that board doesn't really add any value. So I would say, if you want to do board of directors, do it right or don't do it. Just stick to advisory board or some sort of arrangement that gives you much more flexibility. And at least you realize that this is not, you know, quote unquote, corporate governance, that you're doing something you're, at least it will keep you from disappointment and leaves you flexibility to change actions down the road. And while board members can give companies access to valuable networks, just having a board member for their fame or their reputation can also backfire. I understand sometimes in these conversations with some of the cohort members, I I got a sense that often or sometimes the advisory board is more for creating a profile of the company. They could be doing a funding round, et cetera, versus something that's really instrumental to filling those gaps. For us, it was the latter. So in other words, they're picking advisory board members because they think it reflects well on them. It makes them look connected and, you know, on a winning track. And and I'm sure they're adding value in some way, but I think knowing what your why is is important because that's the substance you would draw from them. The best way to ensure that your advisory board is a success is to commit to it. After all, An advisory board gives advice. And if you're not ready to accept that advice, why have a board at all? The only thing I don't know, and I'll have to calibrate, is how much will the leaders connect to the idea? Because I do, I really do, I invest time and energy in that. But I think, you know, each leader, each individual has a leadership style. And some are consultative, some may not be consultative. So I think that's a calibration I have to do if the leaders are going to take up a lot of the interaction, a lot of the value seeking, then I'll have to figure out whether they buy into it or not, because I cannot just create an advisory board and then, you know, not have interactions happen. That would be rather unfair. So that's the only thing if an individual is looking at their business leaders to interact, to be the point of contact with an advisory board, that buy-in has to be there, otherwise it's doomed to fail. 
It's worth noting that Ashish has found such value in his advisory board that he's now thinking of implementing them for all the separate companies within the energy group. I would say having experienced an advisory board, one of the things that I'm very clear about is they add tremendous value. So the idea, one of the ideas I'm toying with is one, having an advisory board for each of these companies. The ecosystems are very different. The technology requirements are relatively different. So I think it would be more prudent to have members for each company. Governance can sound intimidating for an entrepreneur who's used to the freedom and agility and control that comes with a startup. But advisory boards are an incredible way to tap into the experience and expertise of other business leaders. They're also extremely useful in bridging the gap to more elaborate and rigid governance structures that are typically required as you grow and take on investors. So the more you can experiment with them on your own terms, the better position you'll be to capitalize on them down the road. Ultimately, advisory boards are just what they say on the box. Advisory. The decisions are still yours. But if you use them well, you'll be able to make more confident and informed decisions with their guidance helping to light the path. And I'd like to thank Alexi Volonets and Ashish Agarwal for their time and contributions to shine a light on this topic. This has been Grit and Growth with the Stanford Graduate School of Business. And I'm your host, Darius Teeter. If you like this episode, leave us a review on your podcast app. It really helps us to share the stories of these incredible entrepreneurs with as many people as possible. To learn how Stanford Graduate School of Business is partnering with entrepreneurs in Africa and Asia, head over to the Stanford Seed website at seed.stanford.edu slash podcast. Grit and Growth is a podcast by Stanford Seed. Lori Fuller and Erica Amoake Ajay researched and developed content for this episode. Kendra Gladich is our production coordinator, and our executive producer is Tiffany Steves, with writing and production from Andrew Ganim and sound design and mixing by Alex Bennett at Lower Street Media. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time. <laughs>